Here's a statistic for you. It will be alarming. In the past five or six years, there has been a 300%, yes, 300% increase in the rates of right-wing political extremism, terrorism throughout the world. And yet, in some parts of the world, including Australia, we don't even use the phrase right-wing extremism. What is fueling this violence? What are the roots of this extremism? Why does it attract so many, particularly young men, with a grievance against the state? Lydia Khalil is a research fellow at the Lowy Institute. Her forthcoming book is Rise of the Extreme Right, The New Global Extremism and the Threat to Democracy. I wanted to start with the case study that you begin with. Joseph Stack, briefly tell us who he was and what this tells us about right-wing extremism. Right. Well, Joseph Stack case is kind of a very obscure case that probably only extremism and terrorism researchers or practitioners who've been around long enough would know about. So there was a case in uh, 2009 in the United States. Now, this was still kind of at the height of the global war on terror, keep Mm. in mind, when we were still very much focused on the threat of jihadism. And it involved a a plane as well and a hijacking of a plane. Exactly right. So this was a middle-aged man, fairly unremarkable, you know, local musician in Austin, Texas, but who had kind of had some tax issues with the government. He was an anti-tax ideologue and protester. And he had been involved in this anti-tax movement, which is more prevalent in the United States than I think elsewhere. But as we will see, kind of intersects with other elements of, of the far right. And he got so aggrieved around his tangle with the tax man, as I write in the book, mm. that he actually took his single engine plane, took off from a municipal airport and slammed it into the IRS building in Austin, Texas. Now, At the time, he had written a manifesto explaining why he was doing what he was doing. He talked about his anti-tax ideology, his anti-government stance. But it was such a curious thing happened after the attack occurred. Almost nobody wanted to discuss it as terrorism. There was pressure from the far right of American politics to Mm. not consider it that way. Even within the government departments themselves, they said, look, he's acting on his own. He was probably this aggrieved individual with mental health issues. You know, we can't really consider it as terrorism. But I open the book with this example because it just shows all of the things that we had missed and were wrong about our approach to far-right extremism all those decades ago. Why does someone who has a grievance, as he did and as you've outlined, a taxation grievance, why does someone go from that to a radical act of violence, to a more political extreme position? What is that journey? For each person who follows that trajectory, it's quite idiosyncratic. Each person kind of follows their own path to violence or extremism if they chose to go that way. For Joseph Stack, I think what was missing in our understanding of him is that we thought that this was someone who was kind of being bankrupted by the IRS because he kept on trying to sue them and that he had all of these outstanding tax bills. So at the time, we understood it as someone who just had a grievance against the government who wasn't particularly stable, and we kind of dismissed him 
him out of hand. But the thing that we missed is actually before any of that happened, he was heavily involved in the patriot movement and the anti-tax mm. movement in the United States. There was actually an ideology and a movement that had emerged in, around the 1980s, perhaps a little bit earlier, that used of anti-tax protest as a form of anti-government protest. And they aligned with the far right in the United States. And so he was enmeshed in this ideological movement for many years before he committed that act of violence. So it was his inclusion in, in an ideological movement, a personal grievance, and a really a feeling that government is illegitimate and he was going to do something about it. And this is common, as you've outlined in your book, this is common around the world. What starts with a grievance, people find a political home, they find a community, they forge an identity it hardens into an anti-government stance, and then it goes to another level, acts of violence. Why are we seeing this taking hold in so many different places? Because there has been a remarkable increase, 300% over the past five or six years in right-wing violent political extreme acts. I ended up writing a whole book about why, but I'll try to um, pin it down and (laughs) I'll I'll give you kind of the bullet point elements of it. It's not only anti-government, but it's specifically anti-democratic. It's against democratic forms of government. And in the book, I kind of outline a number of structural reasons why. And then I also point to say some more personal reasons for people. The structural reasons, first and foremost, I pinpoint the trend of global democratic decline and trust in democratic government around the world. We've been seeing this global democratic decline for at least the past decade, if not more. There's a whole variety of reasons for that. Among them is the rise of far-right populism that has stoked this anti-democratic sentiment for political gain. Another reason is kind of the growing global inequality that has resulted from the dynamics of globalization. And people feel abandoned. They feel left behind. They feel as if government doesn't speak to them or represent them. That's right. So people are feeling abandoned kind of by both sides of politics. Mm. Um, I cite the work of Thomas Piketty in in my book. Who writes a lot about inequality and the need for greater taxation and how to wind back inequality, doesn't he? That's right. He's written um, many volumes and has done extensive research on this. And he also links this rise of global inequality, not just to economic conditions, but also to political ones as well. And he says that in the previous age of neoliberalism, they're both mainstream right-wing and left-wing politics have kind of um, abandoned the middle-class working-class voter, so to speak, in terms of their economic interests. Mm. So you have mainstream right parties who tend to take care of the interests of capital, right, you know, the business elite, and the left-wing of politics who has now tended to look more toward identity issues, you know, the educational elite, the cultural elite, and there's been kind of an abandonment of the bread-and-butter issues around the working class and taking a look at political structures that would lead to a greater distribution of income. Because we've seen inequality, particularly in consolidated democracies and high GDP countries like Australia, growing exponentially. You know, so much wealth is now in the uh, in the hands of fewer percentage of people. And so voters in democratic countries are looking at that as the elite is in cahoots and the democratic project is not fulfilling our needs. And so they're starting to more and more polarize, abandon their trust in the democratic process, and in some cases, for some people, go to extreme forms of 
delegitimizing the state, including violence. And we do see this in different parts of the world. And while it is commonly an association between right-wing political extremism and white supremacy, when you're talking about the motivating factors for these identity-driven political extremist positions, I can hear echoes of Modi's India and Hindu nationalism. I can hear the narrative that you hear from Al-Qaeda or Islamic State that there is a grievance, that there is an anger, that people have left you behind. They connect, do they, these different ideologies and these different movements? I make the argument that they do. Um, So a lot of the focus on the far right has been kind of in Western democracies, right? So in Europe, United States, Australia, Canada, white majority countries. And we take, we often associate right-wing extremism with white nationalism or white supremacy. And that's certainly a huge part of right-wing extremism globally. But it's more than that. And you're right to point out that, you know, variants of Hindutva extremism can be considered right-wing extremism because there is a, a religious and ethnic superiority embedded in those as well. So there's a concise definition of right-wing extremism and far-right, radical-right extremism that I really like, which is an anti-democratic opposition to equality. And I think that's such an elegant, concise definition of movements that we should consider part of the right-wing extremist spectrum. And you are seeing that arise in India, and you are seeing that arise in, in various other Asian contexts as well. So this is something that we're seeing globally. Lydia, one of the things that surprised me, and I wasn't aware of this, perhaps I should have been, but in Australia, we don't use the expression right-wing extremism, even though our security and intelligence agencies have identified it as the big threat. Why do we not describe it in those terms? It's been my hobby horse for for a while now since that terminology change occurred. And it was something that I thought, you know, only people like me cared about, you know, people who were involved in kind of the bureaucratic and nuances of kind of research into these movements. But this terminology change occurred a couple of years ago, and it's not just Australia who has shifted their terminology in terms of how they talk about extremist movements. In Australia now, government refers to ideologically motivated violence and religiously motivated violence. Now, I make the argument that that absolutely does not make any sense because most of these extremist movements, if not all of them, are ideologically based. A lot of them, even right-wing extremist movements, have a religious component to them. You can't separate it out like that. And the reasons why that terminology changed occurred, you can give some various explanations for it. The one that government puts forward, and to give them credit, there is a case to be made for this. They say the range of extremist movements that we're seeing now are not ideologically coherent. A lot of them, like you mentioned earlier, are grievance-based on conspiracies. They don't fall very neatly into the left-right-wing spectrum, and therefore we're we're not going to label them that way. Canada also does not use left-right. The United States doesn't use the term right-wing extremism. Instead, they use a term called ethnically and racially motivated violence. So there's all sorts of terms that are being bandied about. But what I try to argue is, is that in doing so, you're actually not clearly identifying or you're missing what is a manifestation of right-wing extremism. And movements that may seem disparate or conspiratorial are actually manifestations of right-wing extremism. And I go through them in detail Mm. in the book. Well, it's a fascinating read. I would encourage people to read the book because there is so many more things we could have talked about. But Lydia, it's been a pleasure having you on the program. Thank you. Thank you, Stan. 
Lydia Khalil on her new book, Rise of the Extreme Right, The New Global Extremism and the Threat to Democracy. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.